Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters, and we're so glad you've joined us today. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, where disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. In the New Testament, we read about how early Christians endured dangers and difficulties from many sources. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about the strong resistance they had received from the Jewish people, and also in those passages that there was ambivalence or hostility from among the Gentiles as well. We are aware that the evil one, Satan, uh, tempted Christians sorely then in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. Yet with all these external enemies, the evil one and the Gentiles and the Jews and other uh, persecuting forces, uh, perhaps one of the greatest dangers that they encountered actually came from among themselves, false teachers who would arise from among the people. As Israel and the flesh were beset by false prophets, Peter will make clear in 2 Peter 2 and verse 1, Christians would have to deal with and contend with false teachers. And so we do well to learn from Scripture about these false teachers. Who were they? What can be known about them? How did the apostles respond to these false teachers? And how can we apply these lessons today? We will do best if we consider what the New Testament says about the various false teachers that are mentioned. The first ones that we meet are in the book of Acts. We meet magicians who stand in opposition, Simon and Elymas, in Acts 8 and Acts 13. So as the apostles and early Christians proclaim the good news about Jesus, they sometimes encounter these false prophets that use magic. Philip encounters Simon, he's sometimes called Simon Magus or Simon the Sorcerer. In Acts chapter 8, we're told about him that he had for a long time convinced the Sumerians that he was somebody great. But when Philip comes and does signs and wonders according to the name of Jesus, uh, he also is converted along with the people. And when he sees Peter and John coming down and giving the Holy Spirit, he wishes to buy that ability so anybody he laid his hands on would receive the Holy Spirit as well. And he's sharply rebuked for that. Now, in terms of the Bible, that's all we hear about Simon. But over the next couple of centuries, there are a lot of stories that circulate about Simon going to Rome and promoting all sorts of heresies and, and being rebuked again by Peter there in the apocryphal acts of Peter. An oppressive array of early Christians, Irenaeus, Epiphanius of Salamis, Hippolytus, and others ascribe various forms of Gnosticism and other false teachings as originating in Simon, and a lot of people believe that he was the arch-heresiarch, or the source of all heresy. To some degree, these are all later projections of stories of upon the Simon the Magician. Maybe all of it is, but it definitely shows uh, this belief among early Christians in the continuity of heresy, all deriving from Simon and from sources like him. In chapter 13, Paul encounters Elymas, or Bar-Jesus. He's a Jewish sorcerer who had standing before the proconsul Sergius Paulus. And Elymas contended against Paul when he was trying to tell uh, Sergius Paulus about the gospel. And Paul rebuked him, and he was blinded for a time and refuted. Now, those gentlemen are Jewish uh, magicians of sorts, and they are, they are their own different category. Um, in Acts chapter 15, we start seeing the first grouping of, of false teachers. And they're Pharisaic Jewish Christians. Because inclusion of Gentiles into the fold of Christ as Gentiles would prove extremely contentious. And it would spawn false teachers. 
In chapter 15 of Acts, the chapter begins with Jewish Christians coming down to Antioch from Jerusalem, saying that the Gentile Christians need to be circumcised to be saved and to follow the law of Moses. Barnabas and Paul contended with them, and it led to them going down to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, excuse me, to go and have a, to, to dis- deliberate and decide about the matter. And in verse 5, Luke makes it clear that it's some Jewish Christians among the Pharisees who are those who are saying that these Gentiles need to be circumcised. At this juncture, we see in the following verses, the matter was open to discussion, so that there was still discussion about it. It wasn't immediately marked as false teaching. But at the end of that determination, the Holy Spirit, the apostles, and all of the church in Jerusalem saw that circumcision and the law were not to be imposed upon the Gentile Christians. Now, as we're going to see later on in the text, it's clear that some of these Jewish Christians, maybe of the Pharisees, uh, did not agree with this decision, and we are going to see there how they influence people later. In Acts chapter 20, so a few years later, Paul is heading toward Jerusalem, and he wishes to speak with the elders of the church in Ephesus for the last time. And he makes his farewell speech where he reminds them of his service, the proclamation of the gospel, how he set forth before them the whole counsel of God. But he comes and speaks to them because in verse 28 he says, To pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so he's envisioning this time where uh, Christians, even some of those elders themselves, would be as wolves among sheep and would come in not sparing the flock, would teach false things and lead Christians astray with false teachings and causing such difficulty in Ephesus. Now that's what we see in Acts, in the historical uh, record. Most of what we learn about false teachers actually comes out of the various letters that are being sent by Paul and the other apostles to Christians. We get the first hint of it in Romans. In Romans 16, 17, and 18, Paul says that he appeals to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flatter they deceive the hearts of the naive. It seems that there's probably things going on that may not involve false teachings that could involve uh, divisions and stumbling blocks. And so there's certainly a more expansive understanding of that. But in the specific context, he says that they're not really serving Jesus but their own bellies. And they beguile these innocent hearts with smooth talk and flattery. Um, and so it definitely includes, at least, it may even have primarily in mind, those who would advance false doctrines among the Lord's people, that which is contrary to the doctrines that had been received. The next time we read about them in any significance is in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapters 10-13, through 13, we have the so-called super-apostles. 
There's some who think this is a separate letter, uh, but we are going to assume it's part of the Second Corinthians correspondence because he, Paul has been compelled to write again to the Corinthians to defend his ministry and the gospel he proclaimed in light of these quote-unquote super-apostles who had taken influence among them. And that's from 11, Corinthians 11 and verse 5. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super-apostles. Now, what we know is only based upon what we see in Paul's argument. We deduce that they are casting aspersions on Paul standing as an apostle, his unwillingness to take a salary from the Corinthians, and his physical appearance and speaking ability on account of the things that are said, like in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 10. For they say, his letters are mighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. In chapter 11, verses 5 through 12, we saw verse 5, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, in verse 6, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrain and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Beginning in verse 12, And what I do I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms we do. And he continues on to explain what's going on here. That such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan is uh, disguised himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Why? Because they have come and proclaimed a different gospel in verses earlier, verses 3 and 4. Uh, it's a different Jesus, a different gospel. And he's very concerned that these super apostles are devouring and taking advantage of enslaving these Christians in Corinth. And so he has to warn them solemnly in chapter 13 that without repentance he was going to have to come to Corinth to tear down and that he would not spare them in judgment. Then we can turn to Galatians, which is in many ways all about a certain such false teachers. And it's interesting to begin with 2 Corinthians because we see so many corollaries between what's going on in 2 Corinthians with these people who seem to be puffed up about being Jewish uh, based upon all the charges that Paul will have to clear his name with in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, and then we see the Judaizers here in Galatians. Uh, we, we call them Judaizers, not because that's in the text, but it's because there's this unnamed group of people who are causing consternation. Uh, Galatians is written maybe as early as 48, I believe it's later, somewhere around 55, about how quickly the Galatians were turning to a different gospel in verses 6 through 9. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ in verse 7. So these people who are troubling them and perverting the gospel of Christ are the ones in view in this letter. Now Paul's going to go through the majority of the first two chapters and recounting his life in Christ, affirming that he did not receive the gospel from man but by revelation of Jesus, that he would not be coerced by false brethren in Jerusalem to have Titus circumcised, and that he and Peter and James and John agreed on the substance of the gospel. And so in any case, these troublers were casting doubt on the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship and the source of his message. 
Then in chapters 3 and 4, he presents a very polemic distillation of an argument that you can see more expansively in, in most of Romans, that the law of Moses cannot justify, that Abraham received the promise before his circumcision, that perfection does not come through the law, that the law brings, in fact, a curse, that Jesus brings release from that curse, and why we need to be justified by faith, uh, because if we expect to be justified by law, we are actually falling from grace. In fact, you allegorize uh, the, the difference between Christianity and Judaism in terms of uh, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. One is enslaved, one is free, and we are children of the free woman. In fact, in chapter 4, in verse 8, he says he is vexed, verses 8 through 12, he's vexed by these uh, Galatian Christians, because they had been redeemed from paganism, but they're returning to the rudiments of the world. They're observing days and months and years and seasons in Galatians 4, 8 through 12. Now, verse 17, he says that uh, these troublers will make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They're trying to gain flattery. They're trying to be made greater because of, of what the Galatians would do. And, in fact, he expects them to bear the penalty for what they teach. And in the, one of the most visceral things, he, he wishes that they would emasculate themselves in verse 12 of chapter 5. In fact, in verse, at the very end of the book, in verse 12, toward the end, um, Paul says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And so they're trying to make a good showing and to avoid persecution by doing this, in Galatians 6 and verse 12. And so this is why we call these troublers the Judaizers, because they're Jewish Christians perhaps connected with those causing difficulties in Acts 15. And they're trying to cast aspersions on Paul and his ministry while trying to get these Gentile Christians to be circumcised and to observe the law of Moses. They want to receive honor from these Christians. And all of these com commonalities, that they're Jewish, they want glory, they're casting aspersions on Paul. Um, and also the fact in Philippians 3, 2-6, Paul's warning the Philippians about the dogs, those who emphasize circumcision. And these, this extended argument in Romans that he makes in advance of visiting them about the nature of Abraham and justification by faith versus the works of the law gives credence to an idea that there is these Judaizers and there's these, these teachers who are going about the Eastern Mediterranean and all the way to Rome trying to spread their influence and doctrines in the churches. And that so much of what Paul is writing is to counter their influence. These ideas didn't come out of nowhere. They didn't just come randomly floating by. That these were active things that Paul had to warn Christians about so that they did not fall prey. Now in Colossians, uh, Paul writes to the Colossian Christians concerned that they might be deceived by persuasive speech, philosophy, and human traditions. Because Jesus died on the cross, the Colossian Christians were not to be judged on the basis of festivals or the Sabbath day, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And they were not to be robbed of their prize by those who were puffed up by seeing visions and serving angels, to subject themselves to ascetic impulses in Colossians 2, 18 through 23, of which Paul says that they provide no benefit to the uh, overcoming the temptations of the flesh. It's notorious difficult to nail down exactly what's going on in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, some suggest that there uh, may be some Judaizers about, but a lot of it seems to be what will become Gnosticism. Uh, some suggest that Paul is just in general warning against the types of things that might happen, that nothing actually is happening. 
maybe you've got some kind of early Jewish Gnostic group that is influencing them. We, we don't know as well. It's not as easy to tell from Colossians exactly what's going on. But we can see that Paul is certainly worried about these influences coming into the church there in Colossae and warns them about them. It also seems very possible that there's some teachers in 2 Thessalonians 2 who had forged a letter to the Thessalonian Christians. Not that 2 Thessalonians 2 is, but he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and of our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or of a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So there might have been people who had in their fervor written a letter and said it was from Paul, but Paul had not written it. And he had claimed that Jesus had returned. And so that is why Paul needed to write 2 Thessalonians, at least 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is what we see in the letters that Paul had written to the churches, mostly before the year 60 or so. And we see that there is some concern about false teachers. Uh, there's a lot of issue with the Jude Judaizing type teachers. But when we turn to the pastoral letters, the sort of called the first and second Timothy and Titus, we see a lot more concern about false teachers. This is coming in the 60s, and this is also a conversation that Paul's having with fellow evangelists, Timothy and Titus. In fact, he begins 1 Timothy in verses 3 through 7 of chapter 1 by saying that he left Timothy in Ephesus to teach certain men not to teach different doctrines, giving heed to fables and genealogies that lead to vain talking. These people seem to want to teach the law, but they don't understand what it is or what they affirm. Uh, later on the chapter, in verse 19 through 20, Paul speaks of Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom he says had made shipwreck of the faith, and had they've been delivered over by Satan by Paul, that they would be taught not to blaspheme. An important warning in chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so we see that this is a concern Paul has for the future, that there are going to be these who would depart from the truth and who would forbid marriage and require not eating of certain foods. And then we have a characterization of false teachers that is very prominent in chapter 6. If anyone, verse 3, does teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So he's characterizing those who do not affirm the sound, healthy words of Jesus and teach a different doctrine, that they're puffed up, they don't really know what they think they know, and they focus on words leading to controversy and strife, and they're depraved in their minds, and they're trying to get material gain through godliness. And of course, he's going to talk about the, the value of godliness continuing, but our conversation is about these false teachers. It's also probably something worth noting at the end of the letter, that Paul 
tells Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Knowledge is Gnosis, which is the basis of the grouping that we have later termed Gnosticism. And so we see that it is it's incipient here. It's beginning to show its head and is going to be a continual problem as we will see. In 2 Timothy, verses 16 and 18, Timothy is to avoid profane babblings that lead to gangrene. Such are seen in Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have taught that the resurrection have already taken place. And these are ideas that are consistent with later Gnostic teaching. In chapter 3, in the first nine verses, Paul makes a prophetic condemnation of sinful Christians of the future. And this might certainly involve more than just false teachers, but it's consistent with their behavior. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, uh, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led away by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Giannis and Yambras opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as with that of those two men. So, Giannis and Yambras are the later names given to the Egyptian magicians who opposed Moses and Aaron uh, before Pharaoh. And uh, that idea of always learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth would, would mark Gnosticism and those trends completely as time would go on. That evil imposters would in fact go from bad to worse in verse 13. And they deceive and are being deceived. Then Paul will continue in chapter 4, in verse 3, with another famous passage about false teachers. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And here we see that, it, that false teaching sometimes finds fertile ground because there are brethren who are not holding firm to the truth. And so sometimes we can see false teachers fully leading astray, otherwise good, sincere Christians. And there are times where Christians are asking to be led astray because they have turned aside from the truth in their minds and to wander off into myths. Turning to Titus, uh, Titus chapter 1, Paul establishes the need to have elders in the churches in Crete because uh, at the end they need to hold firm to the word as taught to give instruction in healthy doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they not, ought not to teach. And they are to be rebuked sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, in verse 13, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So we can see that 
but Paul definitely has strong opinions about these individuals. And it's important to note here that it's in the church in Crete, probably in the 60s, and yet these are the circumcision. So we have Jewish Christians who focus on certain things that they shouldn't focus on. They cause all kinds of difficulties and consternation, uh, and they deceive. And they're looking for difficulties, and uh, they're causing nothing but trouble. In Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul provides further exhortation. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And so, there's some false teachers of some sort advancing foolish questions, genealogy, strife, and conflict regarding the law, and they will not be, uh, they do not like the idea of being silenced. But that's what needs to happen, uh, because, lest they lead other people astray. We can see Paul's strong words about what must be done with such divisive people. And so, we see a situation not terribly unlike Colossians, that there's some types that are, you know, Jewish Christians, they might be Judaizers, they may not be binding it upon the Gentiles, but they're certainly always just dealing with all kinds of irrelevant and difficult matters from the law and genealogies and myths and causing difficulties. And we're seeing the rise of incipient Gnosticism. We're starting to see certain teachings that will become much more full-fledged in later times uh, that cause great difficulty. Now we turn to Second Peter and Jude. We put both together because for, for many years the commonalities have been noted that both Peter and Jude warn about false teachers in their myths, midst. As we said beginning in 2 Peter 2, Peter says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we can see that that just like there were false prophets in the days of Israel, now there are going to be false teachers. They're bringing in destructive heresies. They deny Jesus, and they're bringing destruction upon themselves, and they're practicing lasciviousness. The faith is maligned because of them. They exploit with deceit because of their greed. They're going to be condemned. And then Peter continues in this massive diatribe of, of, of great exquisiteness that we must just read, beginning in verse 9. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, in suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have gone, followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. They promise them freedom, but they are themselves slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better if they had never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing itself, returns to wallow in the mire. And so... We see men following after lasciviousness, promising freedom, but actually enslaved. Springs without water. They, they promise something they're not delivering. And they act as if they have all this knowledge that they don't actually have. Now in chapter 3, Peter will go on to warn about those who will scoff about the coming of Jesus. And of course, those who distort the things that Paul writes. And that, that, that they twist and distort the scriptures, which is something that we see frequently from false teachers. Of course, what's interesting is that Jude also uh, was going to write about uh, common salvation in verse 3, but decided he needed to write to con- uh, to appeal to them to contend to the faith delivered once for all to the saints. Because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny the- our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These uh, Jude will have his own diatribe, and he will denounce these persons for defiling their flesh and their dreamings, that they reject authority, they speak evil of these spiritual dignitaries, they rail what they don't, against what they don't understand, they're like irrational beasts, and they persist in the way of Cain, Balaam, and Korah, in murdering their brother, and uh, uh, getting uh, people to seduce the people of God into following idols and to speak rebellion against the, those who have authority in, among the people of God. As can be seen in Genesis 4, number 16 and 31. In Jude chapter 1 and verse 12, he says that these people are blemishes under love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars from the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In fact, you will say that Enoch spoke about these, uh, that judgment was going to come upon all the ungodly ones. And he says in verse 16, They're grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But yet, as he says in verse 17, the apostles of the Lord Jesus had predicted that in the last time there would be scoffers following their ungodly passions. And so it's these people who are fulfilling that, that they are causing divisions. They're worldly people devoid of the Spirit. In verses 17 through 19. And so we have these diatribes against the sensual path of, the, of certain kinds of Gnostics, uh, like the Carpocratians and possibly the Nicolaitans that we're going to see when we look at Revelation chapter 2. And it's interesting to see that the Jude is seeing in them the fulfillment of the apostles had predicted, like what Paul had said and what Peter had said. And so we see that all of these things about these greedy, sensualistic, 
false teachers puffed up with this professed knowledge, presuming to know things they don't understand, railing against spiritual authorities. All of this is very consistent with the various teachings that we see in the various forms of Gnostic teaching as it developed in the late first century and, and continued on into the second and third. And if this weren't clear enough, we also have what John warns about in his letters. His first two letters make an explicit denunciation of those whom he calls the Antichrists. And in chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you, I write to you not because, but you, excuse me, have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has a Father. Whoever confesses the Son has a Father also. So we see that these Antichrists have come out from the Christians, but their departure demonstrates they were never really of the Christians. That they deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Father. In fact, in chapter 4, John expects uh, the Christians to put the spirits to the test. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So there's all these false spirits out there, and we get a very clear idea of the Antichrist of whom he speaks, that these are the ones against Christ. They deny that Jesus came in the flesh. And when we see that, and we look in 1 John chapter 5, that those who deny the testimony God has established should make God a liar, and they don't have life in them in verses 6 through 12. And then in 2 John verses 1, chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this, this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And so we can see there that this Antichrist is in the world, and the Spirit is out there, and they're deceiving. They say Jesus did not come in the flesh. That Christians are not even to greet such a one with God's speed lest they participate in their wicked works, that we must abide in the correct teachings about Jesus if we are going to have the Father and the Son. And so John is encouraging Christians in the face of at least Docetists, those who believe Jesus only seemed to be human, perhaps even early Gnostics. Uh, and that really helps us understand what's going on for the rest of his teachings. Why does he emphasize the practice of righteousness so much? Well, it's because uh, the same 
idea in, in, in this Nicolaitan Carpocratian strain of Gnosticism that would suggest that you could do anything in the body and it wouldn't harm the soul. And thus they would deny the existence of sin. So that's why John says, no, if you deny your sin, you, the father, you're not in the Father. Uh, you're deceived. And, and uh, the one who makes a practice of sinning is not in God. Uh, because that's really a hallmark to show who is faithful and who is not. If you, somebody says they have secret knowledge, and therefore they don't need to worry about practicing righteousness, that's supposed to be a big alarm bell, uh, as noted here by John. And then we also see in Revelation, when we see what Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation, that uh, the, the danger is still there. In chapter 2, the church in Ephesus is commended for seeing false apostles for who they are and for hating the works of the Nicolaitans. Now in verses 14 and 15, the church in Pergamum is criticized because they had some who went in the way of Balaam, that is, those who adhere to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And the church in Thyatira is criticized for tolerating the self-professed prophetess Jezebel, who encourages Christians to participate in sexual morality and eat things sacrificed to idols, that Jesus is going to afflict her and those who follow her. Those who don't know the quote-unquote deep things of Satan's are not burdened any further. Now, it's, exactly, it's difficult to know exactly what the Nicolaitans are and what they're about, but according to a lot of patristic sources, uh, it goes back to Nicholas, Nicholas the disciple from Acts chapter 6, uh, who was believed amongst these people to have had a beautiful wife and uh, took the idea of all things in common to the point of thinking that all men could have had her in common. And so they practiced a form of uh, sexual communalism uh, and, and may have been influenced by various forms of Gnosticism. And we... We certainly see that as a possibility going on. Also, uh, the idea of sexual morality here in, with Jezebel could be idolatry and, and following after idols, or at least capitulating to certain con uh, ideas in idolatry, allowing people to continue to work uh, under the name of a god uh, or participate in various rituals for a guild that would involve idolatry. And so we can see uh, the, the difficulties are continuing. And we also know uh, something about the disputations of early Christians in the post-apostolic era. Uh, because w when the New Testament ends, false teachers don't quit. And the various false teachings that early Christians after the apostles dealt with had come out of the late apostolic age. And they saw the fulfillment of all these warnings that Jude and Paul had, had established and prophesied. Despite the destruction of the temple, a Jewish-Christian contingent remained. They were often called Ebionites, and they continued to emphasize observance of the law and Jewish customs while they proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. Uh, but their concern, and the concern about uh, Juda Judaizing, uh, went to the, to the kind of uh, faded as the major concerns came from the fact that the church became primarily and predominantly Gentile, uh, was interacting with Greco-Roman culture, and therefore the greatest dangers came from conformity to the Greco-Roman world. Marcionism in the second century comes out of Marcion's lack of love of Judaism and the God of the Old Testament. He attempted to get rid of the Old Testament and Jewish influence on the new, uh, keeping only Luke's gospel and Paul's letters. And that would be a, a, a constant difficulty uh, throughout time. Those who wish to de-emphasize the old uh, and try to make the new into something so different as to having no relation with the old. But the greatest challenge came from this group we've kept mentioning, these Gnostics. And now, nobody would go about in the 
that time period call, talking about being a Gnostic. Actually, the only ones we really see doing that are some Christians who try to appropriate the term as the good Christian uh, who has knowledge of God. But uh, we use it today as a catch-all term for a host of ideologies that kind of brought Christian ideas together with Hellenistic current of thought. And it's called Gnosticism based on knowledge because it was the idea that secret esoteric knowledge was necessary to be saved. That there was information that they had that they said was encoded in their texts and in the Bible texts that would explain these various levels of eons and these different uh, spiritual beings and differing levels of divinities. They taught that Yahweh was actually Yalda Baoth, and he was an unfortunate accident of Sophia, deluded to thinking he was the only God who created the physical world, and Christ is a higher eon who came to enlighten humans about the truth of the cosmos to help them work to be released from the body to participate with the divine as pure soul. Now, contrary to this, many of the impressions you might have gotten, the majority actually took this more ascetically, kind of like what Paul's warned the Colossians about. They tried to cultivate soul by renouncing physical pleasures and bodily necessities. But some, as we see in the New Testament, possibly the ones much more active among Christians, uh, or like the Carpocratians, who believed that whatever was done in the body had no influence on the soul, and so they lived in licentious behavior. Now, by necessity, all these Gnostic teachings denied the bodily existence and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, and they emphasized special knowledge over trusting in God. And they were known for being people who would go in and out of Christian assemblies, and they would sit and participate in the assembly, participate in the Lord's Supper, act as if they were completely regular Christians, and then they'd take people aside privately and say, hey, uh, I've got some special things that you might want to hear about, something that they're not fully telling you, or we have special understanding that will help you uh, better in your faith. And... Thus, they would subvert orthodox doctrine and try to influence people to follow after their secret truths. Now, the Marcionites and the Gnostics would give uh, those who would affirm the truth of God and Christ a run for, their, uh, for things, but those movements would fade into relative obscurity by the end of the Roman Empire, as also did the Ebionites. And so what are we to gain about these false teachers as we see them revealed in the New Testament? We've done a very exhaustive survey of what we've seen about false teachers, and we can see from those, from that survey, two general groups. The first one comes out of the Jewish origins of Christianity. These Jewish Christians who could not come to grips with the idea Yahweh would save Gentiles as Gentiles, and therefore who insisted on the continued practice of Jewish customs and the law of Moses, not only among Jewish Christians, but also those who converted from among the Gentiles as well. The next one came as Christianity spread into the pagan Greco-Roman world. Those who struggled to affirm the bodily existence and resurrection of Jesus and the hope of the resurrection and the moral and ethical restraints of Christianity because they were so highly influenced by Greco-Roman philosophical views about reality and the worldly attitudes from which they had come. And so the, the fundamental issue in 1 Corinthians 1, that uh, Jesus crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, uh, per, continues to be the difficulty throughout this early period. And ironically, that for the past 1,800 years, much false teaching has derived from these general trends as well. Because it would not be long because for many concepts in the Old Testament, the law of Moses would be important to the new covenant practice. The dilution of the covenant boundary between old and new would lead to priesthood, the masses, a structured uh, format, the clergy-laity distinction, the idea there could be a Christian nation, ideas about worship and instrumental music and things of that sort. 
Jewish resistance to Trinitarian theology, the idea that God's unity is not in personhood, but in relationship among the Father, Son, and the Spirit, remains manifest in a lot of denominational groups, uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, among others. Uh, the eschatological ideology much of evangelicalism, that dispensational premillennialism, is as woodly, woodenly literalistic as what the Israelites expected. Now, Gnosticism might have been laid low by the Roman Empire, but since Greco-Roman philosophy undergirds Western civilization, there's been this ever-present temptation. The denial of the value of the body and the creation, the belief in mind, soul, over matter, and above all things, uh, among many in secular and spiritual cultures, that obtaining special esoteric knowledge is the means of salvation, either turning the faith into basically a set of propositions, or uh, the conviction that is through greater understanding, and only through greater understanding, that salvation can be obtained. Meanwhile, underneath both groups in the New Testament, there's this common thread, isn't there? There's a resistance to full repentance and maintaining earlier influences. The Judaizer can't bring himself to accept the idea that God could accept Gentiles as Gentiles. His loyalty to the covenant that God made with his forefathers proves stronger than his loyalty to God himself. The Gnostic finds the philosophy, so to speak, of Christ intriguing and beneficial, but he's not questioning or challenging fully his prevailing paradigm. He can't see that his very way of looking at things through the Greco-Roman philosophies is distorting things. Now, both the Judaizer and the Gnostic are willing to grant that Jesus is countercultural in a lot of ways, and they're willing to go so far with him. But there are stumbling blocks where each is going to refuse to go no further with Jesus. And so then both of them, however subtly or otherwise, reframe and recreate Jesus to fit their comfort zone. Somewhat recognizable in many teachings, but now rendered acceptable to the level of cultural compromise and level of distinction from culture that the person feels is right. And so the leavening agent in both of these cases remains clear. It's these previous associations and worldviews. And this, of course, is at work among false teachers to this day. Those advocating the teachings of various denominations are holding firm to a form of human tradition. They're still loyal to some stage of development in which they've been raised or acculturated, and they desire to go no further in seeking a restoration of what the New Testament has established. They accepted the persuasive speech of some, whoever told them about Jesus and will fit, force the text to fit that mold no matter what. Many of these people and others will insist firmly on many elements of the covenant between God and Israel, perhaps explicitly in terms of those commandments in the law or about ideology. Now others will become enamored with Gnostics-type special knowledge and seek to infiltrate and spread in ways as Paul warned Timothy. They try to redefine words, they're highly speculative, and they cast aspersions at authority. This happens to this day. What Paul warned Timothy about, you can see in some false teachers to this day. I personally have had experience with people who have tried to do that very thing. Who basically took a, a line, took it from 1 Peter, Timothy 6 and 2 Peter 2. But to what end? Well, some false teachers do it out of sincere conviction, however misguided they are. Many can only continue to believe as they do if they can get others to believe it. That they need others to accept it for them to believe that it's true. And many of this day are just as Paul told Timothy. They believe godliness is a means of great gain. And for many who have large houses and their own airplanes and yachts, it is a very easy form of gain. But we do need to be careful about caricature. Because we can find a lot of commonalities among sources of false teaching and reasons for it. 
that Paul and Peter and Jude speak about particular types of false teachers and their sort of doctrine. And when we see people who are doing those things, we need to call out false teaching for what it is. It's very difficult to do that. This whole lesson, looking at everything that we've seen, is in its own sense countercultural, because we have been led to believe by people in the world around us that these divisions should not matter, that we should find a way to make it a big enough tent for everybody to be included, when the early Christians here are much more dogmatic about things, and much more willing to draw boundaries, and to have no association with people who are teaching these type of things. On the other hand, we must not be deceived into thinking that every false teacher is going to fit Peter's or Jude's diatribes. For instance, they didn't say of those things about the Judaizers, who affirmed Torah, for instance. Uh, they were just as wrong in some of their doctrines and in what they were trying to do, but they weren't using immorality and things of that nature. They abhorred immorality in many respects. And so, there's not one mold or caricature of the false teacher that we could make. There are some from religious traditions who have compromised the gospel to fit that tradition. There are some who bind asceticism to the wrong ends. There are others who affirm a salvation by a type of knowledge. And there are those who pervert the grace of God into lasciviousness as well. And so we can see how these false teachers have worked. Because they're operating in similar ways of this day to distort the gospel in various ways. And so, we have investigated these false teachers in the New Testament. We have seen how the Judaizers and their ilk attempted to bind circumcision and the law of Moses on Gentile Christians. They obsessed over fables and genealogies and things of that nature. We have seen what would become Gnosticism, the attempt to pervert the gospel through special knowledge, denying the bodily existence and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, either denying the body and asceticism or indulging every licentious desire. And despite the variation in theme, they're all undergirded by a level of cultural accommodation and a resistance to the countercultural truths embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. And in light of that, we are called as Christians to hold firm to the faith revealed once for all, to stand firm in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, and Jude 1 and verse 3, to contend for that faith. That we need to be on guard against false teachers. That we need to understand the truth. We do need to understand the positions of our opponents and refute any error which may attempt to influence Christians around us. And we need to watch ourselves, lest we prove guilty of accommodating Christ to culture. Lest we have cultural traditions or ideologies that we refuse to give up in light of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that we ourselves become false teachers. And therefore, may we confess the truth of God in Jesus of Nazareth, resist all false teachings, and continue to proclaim the gospel. We're again so glad that you've joined us, and we hope that you've been benefited by this. If you'd like to uh, talk some more about false teachers and some of the things going on in the New Testament about them, maybe you'd like to consider what we had discussed previously about false prophets, or talk more about the gospel, maybe hear other messages, read some articles, or find out more about us. We encourage you to find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. Uh, You can also contact me personally through my website at DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.